St. Thomas Aquinas, in his Summa Theologiae, asks the question, whether a beatified angel can sin. The word beatified there just means made blessed. So an angel who has chosen for God and so enjoys the vision of God forever in heaven. He responds in this way. It belongs to the perfection of its liberty for the free will to be able to choose between opposite things, keeping the order of the end in view. But it comes of the defect of liberty for it to choose anything by turning away from the order of the end, and this is to sin. Hence, there is greater liberty of will in the angels who cannot sin than there is in ourselves. I'm going to read that again. It belongs to the perfection of its liberty for the free will to be able to choose between opposite things, keeping the order of the end in view. But it comes of the defect of liberty for it to choose anything by turning away from the order of the end, and this is to sin. Hence, there is greater liberty of will in the angels who cannot sin than there is in ourselves. The insight here is provocative. It goes against our intuitions and will prove for us a kind of occasion of further inquiry. Namely this, okay, greatest freedom is to be found in heaven when we are bound to the end and beyond the possibility of defection. Greatest liberty is to be found in heaven where we cannot but choose God. We cannot look away because it's a vision that is wholly satisfying, that admits of no lessening, and no fear of loss. And in that vision, we are most perfectly free. This, I think, is contrary to the prevailing notion of what constitutes freedom or liberty. Our modern notion, also, is rooted in our modern understanding of nature and human nature. So what we're gonna do for this talk is very simple. We're going to examine the prevailing notion, the modern notion, as to what constitutes freedom, and then we're going to examine the understanding of nature which undergirds that thought, and then I'm going to propose an alternate notion, an alternate theory as to what our human nature is, and then show how we can build that out to an alternate theory of freedom. So we're gonna start with modern, freedom, and then nature, and then move to ancient and medieval, nature, and then freedom. So you see how it all goes. So first, the modern notion of freedom. We can think about this first in terms of our present historical setting. The, dispensa the political dispensation in which we experience life is one of political liberalism. So this isn't to say like liberal versus conservative. This is just to say the whole atmosphere in which we operate. The kind of notion that my rights end where your rights begin. Uh, that many things about public life and discourse are premised on consent. Right? That thing is good to which I consent, to which both parties consent, and that is bad uh, in the instance that consent is withheld. And that we're principally concerned with not doing harm. So there's really no substantive vision of what the good is. You know, that's not really proposed for us. But rather, political liberalism attempts to remain outside of considerations of what constitutes the good so that each individual who shares in this life can pursue his own notion of what the good is. Now, the backdrop to this is a kind of political prehistory. 
one of, um, that's, that's really written into um, a history of Enlightenment philosophy, which need not detain us at this juncture, but we can say simply that it has metaphysical dimensions, okay, so we're talking about being. It has ethical dimensions, so we're talking about how one acts. And then it has political dimensions, namely uh, how we conduct ourselves in civil society. And we can isolate certain notions that are associated with this understanding of freedom. The first I would submit, and I think we all recognize this, is just one of non-coercion. So we have it in our minds that freedom is opposed to violence of any sort. So if I am being forced, then I am not free. So we can go beyond this, though, to a more embracing theory where people will contend that my choice ought not to be or should not be conditioned in any way. So I should be able to choose, irrespective of the input of culture or tradition, of instruction or counsel, of thought and emotion. So I am free to the extent and degree that I can just choose, come what may, and regardless of input. So that's just one theme, one of non-coercion. On the other hand, there is a strong notes here of sovereign self-rule or autonomy. Many modern folks, many people uh, living in the present day and age, uh, associate freedom with being able to rule oneself. So autonomy, you've heard this word, autonomy, it comes from the Greek word meaning law and oneself, so to be a law unto oneself, is often counterposed to heteronomy, right? The law of another, which would then be imposed on us. So there's this great insistence upon, on, upon autonomy to the extent that it can be realized. Uh, so in our contemporary discourse, we rejoice very much in having a space for self-expression and being able to express ourselves uh, to the degree that it is possible, okay? So I'm gonna quote here just a small passage from a Supreme Court decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which this notion um, is given very peculiar, uh, very um, distilled expression. The judge says, at the heart of liberty, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. I'll read it again. Again, what we're trying to access here is this notion that man is utterly undetermined and free to self-determined, to be a law unto himself. It reads, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under compulsion of the state. Now from this, these factors, uh, we have emerge a notion of freedom which we'll call freedom of indifference. Freedom of indifference. In this understanding, the will is just constitutive of human identity. So I am a chooser, I am a chooser, and I am to the extent and degree that I choose. Also in this notion, the will is often construed or conceived as getting out ahead of the intellect. So it's not such a, so much a matter of what one thinks as it is a matter of what one chooses. The will is the arbiter between liberty and obligation, and you realize yourself as you choose. In this understanding, our freedom, or our free will, our free choice, is principally seen as a power to opt. To opt for this or for that, for yes or for no, for right or for wrong, etc. And 
It consists in a kind of indetermination or indifference with regard to these contraries, and thus a power of radical self-determination. If at this point you're thinking, this is like somewhat corresponds with my experience, I can kind of supply examples that, that bolster this point, but it seems a little bit overly philosophical and jargony, fear not, okay? This is the most involved of the thing. Um, we're just setting this up to really get out, to get underneath to a notion of nature, so that way we can understand what is being said about the human person in this vision. Why is there such an insistence placed on non-coercion and on self-rule or autonomy? So let's move now to then the modern notion of nature. In, uh, we can track this through the history of science and through the history of philosophy, that nature has, has kind of been trivialized in our discussion as to who man is and what he is for. So in the modern approach to nature, there is a setting aside of things that before were very much prized um, and seen as, uh, you know, kind of like constitutive of our consideration of man. So a classic way to approach the question would be to ask, why? Why is this thing, namely humans, why is it this way and not another? And in one particular philosophical tradition, we would answer this question by asking what causes it to be the way it is. And um, the, the typical way in which you would answer this question was to isolate the stuff that it's made from, what gives it shape or makes it to be what it is, who makes it to be thus and such, and then what is it for? Classically, this is called uh, the four causes, right? So you have the stuff from which it's made, the material cause of the matter. You have the shape, the structure, the kind of intelligible unity of the thing, or its form or formal cause. You have the person who makes it to be such, which we call the efficient cause or agent cause. And then the purpose for which, which is called the final cause. Now, in the history of philosophy, it became common to set aside formal causes and final causes. Set aside formal causes and final causes. So we weren't so much concerned about what makes a thing to be what it is, nor were we so much concerned with discerning why it was ever made in the first place or how it ever came to be. Instead, we're just talking about stuff and force. We're talking about the stuffness of it and then the forceness of it. And that effectively exhausts our consideration of the matter at hand. And this is typically the approach of the modern sciences. So when you go about then examining the human person with these philosophical tools, you can begin to appreciate how your scope would be limited and you're only going to come up with answers that fall within that scope and you're going to dismiss as magical or otherwise trivial the things that fall without that scope. So if you're only searching for a particular answer, you're going to dismiss as um, nonsensical or as silly or naive those that fall without your considerations. So you can, I mean, you can see how this would affect our study of human nature. We might ask the question, just kind of commonsensically, what is it that men have in common, or what is it that constitutes a good life for man? But with this modern philosophical or modern scientific approach, uh, it's easy to rule out the notion of a common nature, to rule out the notion that there is something that makes us all to be what we are and to have that nature in common. Because each of us is just kind of atomized parcels of matter, exercising force or having force exercised upon us. So what is it that makes you like you? Well, that you're all made out of the same stuff. So it becomes kind of reductionistic. And no longer are we asking, like, what is in the heart of man? Or, Lord, what is man that thou hast kept him in mind? Or kept him in mind? So 
Um, with this dismissing of nature, we also have a dismissing of normative claims, okay? So it becomes difficult to say what a human person ought to do if we have no sense of what a human person is. Because like, uh, for instance, if you, so you can think of Ariel, right, in um, The Little Mermaid. Okay, great classic, early 90s, wonderful time. Maybe it was late 80s, hard to say. Um, it was kind of in the golden age of puffy case VHSs. Um, but, but Ariel doesn't know what things are for, right? She's got who's it's and what's it's aplenty, all right? And so she interacts with these objects in very bizarre ways, like using forks to comb her hair, which causes us revulsion, right? Unless it's animated beautifully, and then we're like, yeah, that's great. Um, so if you don't know what a thing is, it's very difficult to interact with it according to how one ought to interact with it. And if you dismiss this question of what man is, then how can we begin to entertain questions of what man is for and how best to live? So what we get in the end is you be you, okay? Live your best life. Uh, you are all unique and individual snowflakes. Um, which is true as far as it goes, but it just doesn't give you much in the way of rules for living, okay? We need to look to Jordan Peterson for that. Um, so... Here, in this understanding, meaning and the good life is not something to be discovered, clarified, and progressively lived according to a normative standard. Rather, it's something to be constructed. It's something to be invented. And if so, then freedom is just the space in which this project unfolds. So you are literally free to be whatever you want, even if in so being you sow the seeds of your own destruction. It's very fascinating. You know, you are literally free to ruin your life in the modern understanding. And who could tell you otherwise? Okay. So that's our modern section. We had a modern notion of freedom, and we see how that modern notion of freedom is rooted in a modern notion of nature. Now we're going to build up an alternate proposal. And I'm not going to argue for it too terribly much. Rather than being like apologetic, I'm going to be more catechetical. So if you think that, hey, you didn't substantiate that point, you're going fast and loose. Like, who are you? Um, you can ask those questions uh, at, the end of the, uh, at the end of the talk. So, uh, first, we'll do a classical medieval notion of nature, and then we'll do a classical medieval notion of freedom. So, in Aristotle and St. Thomas's understanding of nature, nature is a principle of motion and of rest. At first, that may seem uninspired and not especially compelling, but let's unpack it. So, <clears throat> what, we are, what we are considering of and when we're talking about a nature, is the essence of a thing, okay? It's formal identity, it's very substance. We're asking what the thing is and what makes it to be what it is. We're building up a picture here that goes beyond force and stuff, that, that takes into account, in the case of human persons, for instance, the soul, the soul, which makes a man to be alive, and to be alive is this type of creature. So, nature is both form and it's also finality. So it gives indication as to what we are, but also what we are for. So first, form. Nature accounts for our specific identity. Remember, we talked about the four causes, material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. We're talking about a formal cause. We're talking about what makes a thing to be what it is. It's a principle of integrity, a principle of coherence, a principle of interiority, and a principle of agency which is to say it holds the thing together. It accounts for the fact that we can access what this thing is. It also accounts for the fact that this thing has functions or powers that go beyond the merely superficial. And it accounts for the fact that this thing can act in the world in a way that's proper to it. 
So nature, in this sense, also accounts for the fact that we can be, or things can be, members of a kind. So that there is a human nature to be described, and then we can compare ourselves or others to human nature. There are better and worse instances of a nature. So like, for instance, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville, and there was a deer there with only three legs, affectionately named Tripod. Okay? <laughs> so when you, when you saw the deer on campus, you would say, that is a deer. And then if somebody asked you, how many legs does a deer have, you would say four. And then the person could point out, but like, Tripod has three legs. And then you would say, but deers are supposed to have four legs. And you could recognize the fact that Tripod was deficient in that respect. Which doesn't mean to say that like Tripod is bad and evil and ought to be shunned from our company, right? But it doesn't mean that because there is an aberrant instance of a deer that we then go back to the drawing board and reconceive what it means to be a deer. Formerly, it was a four-legged creature, you know, which is kin with Bambi. But now it's a, a four- or three-legged creature because we found one instance. No, that's not what we're doing when we talk about in nature. We're talking about what obtains always and for the most part and it's also a standard whereby we can recognize what is a departure, what is a less uh, excellent or less perfect instantiation of the kind, okay? So we have in our sense what a human person should be, okay, like paragons of humanity. And we can compare ourselves to them and realize our nature more or less excellently, okay? So it's a temptation to compare ourselves to people who are excellent humans in one respect or another, but we only really derive... Uh, comfort, consolation, and direction from comparing ourselves to the one who lived humanity perfectly, okay? This is why you often hear in, like, spiritual discussions that you can only compare yourself to Christ, right? Because in comparing yourself to those around you, you often either contemn them or contemn yourself. G.K. Chesterton wrote that comparison, not familiarity, comparison breeds contempt. So, nature is this specific identity. It accounts for a fact that a thing is what it is. And... We've already kind of gotten ahead of ourselves here, but nature is also finality. So it gives us the standard and the goal of progressive realization. So we are on the way towards the fullness of who we are meant to be. And nature sets before us that trajectory. So when we talk about finality or final cause, we're talking about that for the sake of which. We are talking about that for the sake of which. So we talked about Ariel and her who's its and what's its. Those are functional things and they are more perfect when they are exercised according to their intended function, all right? And if we use them outside of their intended function, then they can cause great damage, right? So you know, like when you have the right tool for a thing, it's very easy to carry out the task. But when you go about it with the wrong tool, then you can do great damage to the thing that you're working with. So I was asked on Saturday to remove a zip tie from uh, an air pump so as to release like one of those needles that you use to pump up a ball. Okay, and I didn't have a pair of scissors. If I'd had a pair of scissors, this would have taken me like two seconds. Instead, I had a key, okay? And so I used the key as like a makeshift saw, but I did damage to the pump itself, which is, you know, counter to my purposes. So you can understand that when we use a thing according as it is intended to be used, it flourishes, and we flourish in our relationship with it. But when we use it contrary to its purposes or outside of its range of intended purposes, then we can actually do damage. We are a thing like this. We are intended for a certain end. And if we try to act as if we were not, then we can do great damage to others and to ourselves. So the trajectory of our lives is actually set by what we are. Nature is a principle of rest and of motion. It's a principle of identity 
end of unfolding. So then, we flourish to the extent that we interact profitably with the goods that are intended for us. So St. Thomas will observe, we are a substance, and like all substance, we want to continue in existence, right? So we eat, and we drink, and we are merry. He also observes, we are animals, and so we should do those things and pursue those goods which are proper to animals. One of the goods proper to animals, the principal good proper to animals, is procreation and education of children. You are not a good fox unless you hand on fox life. Unless the adjective is foxy life, but then it becomes confusing, right? <laughs> so, there are goods on offer, and we need to interact with those goods, we need to engage those goods in a profitable way. But he observes further, that not are we mere animals, we are rational animals. And so there are certain goods to which we are addressed as human beings with which we need to engage profitably. He lists to know the truth about God, to live well in society, to shun ignorance, and to avoid offending those with whom we live. This is not meant as an exhaustive list, but this is to say that we are addressed to certain spiritual goods. And that is set for us, the terms of that is set for us by virtue of what we are. So, there are certain goods for us as human beings, as rational animals, and to the extent that we engage with them profitably, we are built up. We acquire certain perfections that arise in light of what we are. Now, as human beings, we act to attain these goods through the powers of our soul. So, we are a composite of body and soul. That's not to say that we're two things, body and soul kind of strangely joined together, but we're one thing, an embodied soul or an ensouled body, depending on how you want to describe it, okay? Um, and we act through our soul. So the body is forsake of the soul, and the soul is the locus, the place of our powers, which are basically the way by which we engage with our environment. Uh, this may sound abstract, but these powers are uh, kind of natural for us or connatural for us to recognize. So we have powers of growth, of self-nourishing, of reproduction. We have powers of sensation, right? Both exterior senses and interior senses. We have powers of sense appetite, right? Desires that come with our sensations. And we can observe at the height of our powers, we have minds with which to know, and we have hearts with which to love. So we have powers whereby to engage with the goods on offer that are addressed to us for the upbuilding of our life. And from those powers issue acts. Those acts are ordered to the objects of our powers. And those powers can be better or worse. You know, they can, they can be, well, they can, they can be exercised more or less excellently. And this is the whole purpose of the life of virtue. That virtue is a stable disposition, a stable or permanent disposition of the mind and heart, which enables us to choose our good easily, promptly, and joyfully. That is to say, we don't have to constantly struggle or anguish over what we're made for because we have these dispositions of the heart, these habits, which make it easy for us to recognize what is good and to pursue it. So again, keep this in mind. The saint is not the moral juggernaut who wakes up every morning and says like, ah, I don't want to do the things, but I will do the things. <laughs> Rather, the saint is the one who wakes up and says like, let's go. You know, I was made for this and I love it. You know, like, Exactly, right? So that is what the saint says and does. Um, so one aspect of our powers, one aspect of our, uh, our lives, our human lives, is that we have appetites. 
So there's kind of two dimensions in how we engage with reality. We cognize it, okay, so either we think about it intellectually or kind of by, by way of our senses, and then we desire it. And that desiring piece is just what we mean by appetite. So there are appetites which are just immediately attendant upon nature. So there's things that we incline just by the mere fact that we are. Uh, so like, we just gravitate towards certain goods. We don't have to um, think about it, we don't have to discern. We just go in that direction, okay? So this is like, when you think about animals, like instinct. A sheep does not need to be taught that a wolf will kill it. It just sees the wolf and then it flees. So there are certain things like that where we just immediately and intuitively incline towards what we're made for. There are other appetites, though, that come with sensation. So you're like strolling down whatever street. Okay, I should know the streets here. Uh, you're strolling down Highland, and then um, you hear the dulcet tones of music like wafting out of Highland coffee. And then it conjures in your mind an image of the last like dark roast coffee that you had there. And while you have already had three cups today, the thought of like comfort and warmth and the communion of those who are seated at those very delightful tables, it's just, it just overwhelms you. And so then you find yourself kind of tripping along towards Highland Coffee, paying for something for which you have not the money, indulging in something for which you have not the appetite, etc. Okay, so this is what we mean by like sense appetite. Something appeals to us in a sensory way, and then we incline to it uh, by, vir by, by virtue of you know, our sense appetite. But then we have a rational appetite. So here, we're thinking about things in a kind of immaterial way. Um, so let's say that I am engrossed in a conversation as to what it means to be good, okay? And it's like a very intense conversation with somebody who's very wise and has challenged me to like be a better person. Um, and I realize that I've been a slug a bed, um, a sluggard, um, two words that are often used in colloquial English. Um, <clears throat> and I am rebuked interiorly at my laziness and I have a kind of conversion of heart and I resolve to set my alarm 15 minutes earlier. So this is something that like animals don't do, right? Animals don't have regrets. Animals don't resolve on ongoing conversion. A animals don't like agonize as to whether or not to push the snooze button, okay? This is something that is proper to us by virtue of the fact that we have minds whereby we can think about things immaterially, conceptually. So this appetite, this intellectual appetite, this rational appetite is just what we mean by the will. Okay? We've been coming to this point. This is the climax. This is like where we've come to. That's all we mean by the will. So the will isn't something over here independent of considerations of the good. It's a way that we as human beings are addressed to particular goods that are for us as rational animals. So the will, or intellectual or rational appetite, is one of the highest powers of the human person, and it's just the appetite for the intellectually apprehended good. It's a power that originates from within the agent. It has this note of interiority. And also, kind of tangentially, side note, this is part of what it means to be made to the image and likeness of God. So it's said in the scriptures, in Genesis 1, uh, 26 maybe, um, that in the image of God he made them, uh, to the image and likeness he made them. And in that, the Christian tradition often reads an association with intellect and will. That we have powers that mirror God's interior life more perfectly than does lower creation. So we have these faculties, these, these powers, these capacities of knowing and loving which make us like God. And what is more, we can with these powers know and love God. And then at its height, 
We can know God with his own knowledge and love God with his own love so that the interior dynamic of the very Holy Trinity becomes the interior dynamic of the human mind and heart. It's pretty wild, actually. Okay. So that's all we mean to say by nature. That's all we mean to say by nature. And for our fourth and final point, a classical or medieval notion of freedom. And it's for this that we have come. So, lower appetites, what we described when we talked about like growth and nutrition and reproduction, these are determined. These are determined. As we encounter them, for instance, in like minerals, like rocks, or in plants, or in animals, we only ever encounter them in determined fashion. So, a rock can't but be rocky. A plant can't be but planty. And an animal can't be but animally. <laughs> right. But we, we are not so much determined as we are underdetermined in our nature. And there are two sources of our being undetermined. We're going to unpack this. So first, we're going to call freedom of exercise. And then second, we're going to call freedom of specification. You don't need to memorize these. If you have writing materials, you could write them down. Um, so freedom of exercise. We have a kind of freedom or undetermination with whether or not we act. So we can choose whether or not to act. St. Thomas draws an analogy with sight. He says, when you, when you have your eyes open, you can't but see. You cannot but see. Which is why it's torturous when someone holds your eyes open, not only because your eyes dry out, because sometimes you are forced to see things that you would otherwise prefer not to see. But when you have your eyes open, you cannot but see. But, he notes, you can close your eyes. So you're like, ah, I can't help myself, I'm just seeing the things. It's like, no, you could close your eyes. So if there's like a movie and it has like dubious content, you're like, oh, yikes, dubious content, what a bummer, I can't but see, you know? <laughs> you can close your eyes, right? Or if you have a scapular, you can cover the whole television and close everyone's eyes, okay. <laughs> So, we have freedom of exercise. Furthermore, we have freedom of specification. Because whenever we look at a thing, we are never bound to choose it in the strict sense because we can see it as good or evil in different ways. So, for instance, think about those goods which are most irresistible, most delicious, most undeniably good. So, like crawfish po'boys, for instance, right? It's a Friday in Lent. You happen to be driving through Lafayette. You see old-time grocery. You're attracted as if by gravitation. And like, it's almost as if you haven't chosen any of these sequences of events. Like your car drove itself. You, you are literally in the first driverless car. Like they gave you the Google car for the purpose. Um, and you arrive there and you're in line. And this seems to be the best possible thing. It has overwhelmed you. You are undone in its presence. Okay? This seems like the type of thing that you cannot but choose. It is good in every aspect. There is no way in which it is evil. But, say for instance, that someone toddles in behind you, okay, and you hear them saying, I have come for this alone. I'm 89 years old. My body is riddled with cancer. I was raised in a small town in lower Germany. And since the moment of my being weaned from my mother's breast, I have heard tell of the crawfish pole boy. And I have come here now to enjoy as my last meal this sandwich. And then the guy up at the counter who's wearing one of those Lent shirts says, last pull boy, sorry we ran out of crawfish. And it's you in line and then the guy behind you. You can step aside and give him his dying wish. 
This just became like very emotionally charged and dramatic. <laughs> I didn't intend for that to happen, okay? But like this thing, which is so undeniably good, you can now see under a different light. It would be bad of me to take it when this guy has never had one and has literally been pining away for it for like 87 years, right? Provided that he wasn't pining away when he was one, because I don't know how much he could have known. So, so like this thing, which seems to overwhelm you, can be seen as evil under a different respect. So St. Thomas says this is true with respect to all goods, but one. We could always see it under this aspect or under that. Now, St. Thomas backs this up and says, what is the reason for which this is the case? He says, we are underdetermined with respect to these goods because we are super determined with respect to the universal good. Okay, you're like, okay, jumbo, break it out for me. Okay, here we go. So, we are never bound to choose one particular thing because there is a good, the good, the ultimate good, the highest good, which has claim on our hearts. So, a word on the universal good. The intellect is potentially all things. We can know potentially all things. And so, we are ordered to what is universally true. We are never sated with one particular true thing. Like if somebody tells you, um, like Ben Simmons scored 18 points in the Sixers last game, you're never gonna be like, I know enough. <laughs> I am satisfied. You're gonna wanna know how many points he scores tonight and then the next night, and all 82 nights of the season, and then the further nights of the playoffs, especially in the NBA Finals when he wins. Prediction, yeah. So, um, <laughs> you will want to know potentially all things. Also, the will is the appetite consequent upon our intellect, okay? So we just desire those things that we first know, and thus, our wills are ordered to what is universally good. Our wills are ordered to what is universally good. Whatever we choose, we choose in light of the happiness for which we are destined, the perfect good, which has no shadow of change, no shadow of imperfection. So then, how does this condition our engagement with particular goods? Particular goods are then judged in light of the ultimate good as contributing to or detracting from it, but only ever partially. You never look at a, at a particular good and say, like, you complete me. And if you do so, you're lying, okay? You can mean that in a certain way, like, before I met you, I was deficient in this, that, or the other way, and you make me a better person. But you're not going to say, like, having you, I need for nothing else, because that's idolatrous. Okay. So, particular goods are judged in light of the ultimate good as either contributing to or detracting from it, but only partially. And so no particular good compels the will, save the highest good, which is to say, when you see the vision of God in heaven unto ages of ages, you cannot look away. So, there is a kind of ambivalence in both registers, all right? So there's like, you can do this or you can do that. That's what we mean by ambivalence. There's an ambivalence in both registers, but it's ordered to a kind of increasing attunement to the highest good and in turn to true and fullest freedom. This is the point, so I'll repeat it. We can choose or we can not choose. We can see a thing under this light or under that light, but ultimately the point isn't to revel in the ambivalence. The point is to be increasingly attuned to the highest good and to enjoy true and fullest freedom. So freedom of exercise is poised between self-enslavement and true freedom. You can do it or you can not do it, but not choosing, or choosing to do or not do things that are bad for you ultimately bind you to choices that are destructive. You either choose to self-enslave 
or you choose to be truly free. So too, freedom of specification, you know, the, the, our ability to see things under this light, under that light, it's poised between counterfeit goods and true freedom. We can become the type of people who see things that are kind of good or deficiently good or in truth be told not actually that good as good. Our eyes can be trained to see things in that way or they can be trained to see in a way that's truly free. Virtuous habituation, that is to say growing in virtue, is in choosing the good will realize the full grandeur of freedom. So as we become the type of people who habitually choose the good on the way towards the ultimate good, it becomes easier and prompter and yet more joyful, and we become more free to choose the good for which we are destined because we are not self-enslaved and we are not like laboring under the deception of counterfeit goods. And we can actually acquire this as a second nature. So, free will or free choice is the ability to choose according to wisdom and to love what is truly good. And it comes to better and better expression as we are habituated in that good. The whole drama of human life then consists in going about this with greater and greater perfection, to go about this with greater and greater facility, to love it and to incline to it, to do so spontaneously and joyfully without fear of what may come. So we go from being agonized and anguished and paralyzed and riddled with anxiety as to the many options that are on offer to inclining to that good with a kind of dexterity, with a kind of virtuoso alacrity. A couple of examples. Think of a, a jazz musician, okay? So a jazz musician, we associate, we associate them with great freedom, especially when you have a bunch of guys in the same room who can um, extemporize really well and really beautifully. But what we do not see is the fact that those men have mastered the rudiments. They have put in the time, they have been formed by a culture and a tradition and a kind of musical law, and they operate, they are circumscribed within the bounds of that culture. And it's only within the bounds of that culture that they are free to express themselves. Because if one guy says, like, I'm going to do a, you know, atonal piece, and another guy says, I'm going to do a 12-tone scale, and another guy says, like, uh, I'm going to do normal stuff, like, that's, that's not going to be music. It's going to be chaotic. It's going to be awful and ugly. But if they agree upon the standard, if they agree upon the rudiments, if they agree upon the key, if they agree when they're going to modulate and demodulate, when they're going to go from like slow swing to bossa nova, then what you can witness is something beautiful. And you can see men with incredible freedom doing precisely what they are made for. Or maybe you're not into jazz. Think of Alvin Kamara, okay? A man who wins for all of those who have him on his fantasy team an incredible number of points, okay? He's both running back and wide receiver, sage and muse. Um, right? So think of Alvin Kamara kind of navigating whether or not he's going to like run a flare, whether he's going to kind of squeak out of the backfield and into the second level, or whether he's going to wait for a draw. Like he's, he's thinking of a lot of things, but he's not going through rules and choosing like A or B, B or C, C or D. He feels it in his body. He's able to take the temperature of a defense. He's able to take the temperature of like Drew Brees or Teddy Bridgewater, depending on who's injured, or like Taysom Hill if they're going to run a trick play. So he's able to feel these things out because he has mastered the art, the craft of football. And so he is able to be maximally effectual. Like when you see him in the open field and he does like a little shimmy step, you're like, this is what you were born for. <laughs> it's incredible. Like there is such a freedom because he is doing what he was made to do. So, what we have here, by contrast to the freedom of indifference, is a kind of freedom for excellence, 
a freedom for excellence, a perfection of the free will, a kind of virtuosity so that you can choose the good, so that you can abide in the good, so that you can live the good and not worry about it like other things. It's not, it doesn't matter to you that you have fewer options. It doesn't matter to you that you're like not being coerced because those are secondary considerations. They're part of freedom, but they're not the whole of it. The whole of it is to be espoused to the good in a way that admits of no infidelity. So, conclusion. Freedom of indifference is but a pale shadow of freedom for excellence. To be indifferent is to be unmoved, unpressured, detached, aloof, uncommitted. But to be excellent is to be bound to the good and spontaneously inclined to what actually represents and is your perfection. So true freedom does not then consist simply in non-coercion and moral ambivalence, but in an actualized power to choose for what is truly good in light of one's nature. Paradoxically, as we saw at the beginning, freedom consists in fixity rather than in non-committal indifference. Return to our first thought then. Heaven is the place of greatest freedom. For only in heaven will one possess the good, whole and entire, without fear of loss or defection, in an internal embrace of undying and ever-abounding joy. Thank you.